Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we date dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans and restructuring spaces. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be doing our review preview episode. Today we've got our resident experts on CLOs, restructuring, bonds, loans and ESG who will be looking back and crystal ball gazing into 2022. First up, we're going to be looking at bonds and loans. I have with me credit analyst Ben Hoskin. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Cap. Pleasure as always. And editor Chris Haffenden, our resident restructuring and distressed debt expert. Thanks for being with us, Chris. Uh, no problem, Cat. Good to be here. But of course, you're extremely clued up on the entire leveraged finance universe. So we'll start with you, Chris. What did you make of 2021? Well, I think it's been, as our, our reports have put out for the end of the year, it's just been a blockbuster year. I think most people weren't expecting it to be as strong as it was. I suppose if you started the year, you're starting to think about you know the effect of renewed lockdowns in 2021 and how that was going to you know affect markets. But you know, it, by early summer, you were seeing some sort of fairly aggressive deals being put through. And, you know, it was clear that, you know, investors and bankers were looking beyond, you know, the effects of 2020 and 2021 on uh, on businesses and were happy to sort of even do deals off 2019 figures. And you, know, you saw the market really aggressively take off during the summer and probably up until September. And then we saw a little bit of a pullback. Yeah, on the loan side, I think I was speaking to buy-siders who were cooling off even as early as November and uh, Omicron only helped that along. But on the blockbuster year side, you're absolutely right. Certainly from a leveraged loans perspective, a record-breaking 134 billion euros of uh, euro-denominated leveraged loans were issued in 2021. And I'm lifting from my colleague Laura's report, Christmas Wrapping, which is well worth a read. It should be in most of our subscribers' inboxes. Uh, but yeah, that, that data was just up until December 15th, so it was already record-breaking by mid-December. Just touching on OIDs and margins between 2021 and 2022, certainly looking at the second half of, of those two years, OIDs were much more likely to be a lot, lot lower in 2020. Uh, but margins, actually, funnily enough, in 2021, seem to be concentrated uh, much more in the 350 to even 500 area, which is strange because it felt like it was a a really low margin year, but certainly in the second half of the year, uh, it was quite high margin. But certainly on the OID side, uh, loans look much more attractive uh, in 2020. I know that this is something that you've written about, Ben, the outperformance of bonds uh, in issued in 2020 uh, versus 2021 uh, what, what's going on there so there's a there's a number of reasons for that but I think certainly one quite interesting thing that we've looked at previously is um, the the amount of deals that got issued peak pandemic or, or in summer 2020 with companies coming to market and paying quite a high premium for that liquidity so they were sort of issued with coupons much higher than they would have been issued at historically and since in secondary they've traded very well for, certainly for, for some of these names um, spreads have come down to sort of around at or around pre-covid levels and structured as five non-core twos would expect a lot of these to to start coming out um, in sort of summer 2022 when that core protection rolls off 
And to sort of emphasise that point, we've got around 60 billion worth of uh, 60 billion euros worth of debt trading to call in 2022. So thinking about the high yield space in 2022, what are markets worried about? Yeah, so obviously inflation, central bank liquidity and rates are the key areas of focus for markets this year. And we wouldn't expect that to be any different for the European high yield space. So I think firstly, you're going to see some companies wanting to come back to market and refinance before base rates go too far the wrong way. Given where inflation is today, I know a lot of people have different opinions on it, but if it remained where it was today, you'd think that the window of opportunity to do that is is going to shorten. Um, additionally, if we see you know, the huge amounts of, of central bank liquidity supporting quite punchy valuations, if some of that is paired back, we could see the M&A pipeline slow up to an extent or you know, at least some of the value coming out of the equity portion on, on new LBOs. Yeah, I think it's fairly safe to call it now and say that it's not going to be uh, the blockbuster year that it was in 2021. I think the sell side was predicting that, uh, you know, as early as autumn. Um, but there is a lot of CLO money still sloshing about, which we'll discuss later on. Uh, is there anything redeeming about the upcoming M&A pipeline, perhaps? Yeah, so that said, we're still looking at a private equity space with uh, that is sort of flush with cash. And looking at our forward deal calendar, we still have around six. 60 deals that have already been announced. Um, one of the first, of course, being the Morrison's buyout, which will be a very interesting one to watch and in, in terms of sort of setting the tone for the rest of the year. But for sure, we'd expect M&A to be a key contributor again to 2022 issuance. Listening to the bankers, they sort of suggest it's going to be a good, very good year, but maybe not such a blockbuster year. There was probably a little bit of catch up from 2020 that was in 2021. The key bit for 2022 will be is whether you can actually get these sort of jumbo LBO deals through and, you know, whether there's going to be, you know, the demand for the, you know, for those deals, particularly the sort of the bigger deals, which, you know, the 30 billion plus deals, whether the market can absorb those. We'll be talking about ESG a little bit more later on uh, in the podcast, but it's pretty much clear to everyone that ESG will be a continuing theme, certainly in the leveraged loans world. I think we're all expecting to see more green bonds, more sustainability linked debt. Is that the case? So in 2021, that shot up to 20% of total issuance. That's up from sort of 1% to 2% across the sort of 2017 to 2020 period. So certainly moving into 2022, that's something that we would expect to continue seeing going from strength to strength. So wrapping up our bonds and loans overview, Ben, Chris, is there anything else you want to point out? Another thing that we looked at in our sort of 2021 wrap up piece was we we showed quite a nice correlation between inflation and floating rate note issuance over the past sort of 10 years. So that'll be quite interesting to watch to see if that theme continues um, moving into 2022 with inflation higher. Do companies opt to issue more floating rate debt over over fix? Uh, and then there's there's all the other sort of macro risks, supply chain, raw material prices, inflation, you know, whether companies can sort of push those through and whether that's going to you know affect you know the overall market in terms of pricing. So moving on to the kind of restructuring and distress side, um, those are going to be key drivers in in that field as well, right? Yeah, I, I think we've seen some companies that uh, don't have that pricing power. You know, some of them claim that they've had the sort of perfect storm in sort of Q3 and Q4, you know, such as names like Boparan, um, in in the sort of food industry and then Standard Profile in automotive. You know, we've had this 
I think those companies struggle to sort of push through their price increases on time. They're trying to play catch up. But, you know, the question is whether they really have the pricing power of someone who's actually much more um, integral to the um, to the production cycle. Okay, fascinating. And you just put out a report recently. um, It was talking about, you know, why this was the year that wasn't for the restructuring world. Do you think that's going to happen again? Or do you think that these drivers will will kind of push this into the year that was? Um, that's the that's the the big question. I think if you were asking me about 2021 this time in 2020, I probably would have a very different view in terms of what actually panned out. So I suppose the answer is, I don't think you are going to get such a favourable financing market that you did in 2021. So some of the names that managed to squeak through with a stressed refinancing will probably have to to do a restructuring we're already seeing that and some of the more sort of difficult names that tried to refi and now are actually going down the restructuring route such as low and play and uh, and hayer real estate and i think there's going to be a few more that sort of get shaken out with the um with with the inflation picture you know the fact that initially you might be able to push through those price increases but if you're asking for a second and third round of price increases are they really going to stick um and then i think there's also just going to be some names which have issued in the last couple of years that aren't really going to be able to hit their business plan and just naturally as part of the overall cycle you are going to see some companies start to get into some degree of distress whether they actually do end up in restructuring in 2022 or whether that's a 2023 event I think is you know still still up for debate. What were some of the, the your favorite names to watch in 2021 and do you think that they'll kind of continue to be your favorite names in 2022 or have you got your eyes on some new names? The things that sort of hoved into view back end of the year were the German real estate sector, you know, most notably on the back of the Viceroy sort seller report for Adler and Aggregate. But I think that's really changed people's perception of that sector. And they're now starting to look much more closely about, you know, whether there's actually any potential fraud or distress in that sector and whether that will shake out into restructurings and mandates. And I think, you know, we've been uh, we've been enjoying sort of getting, getting ourselves up to speed on that. Um, then there's the... Names such as Bopuran, Standard Profile, we spent quite a bit of time on those. Um, and I think also the ones which have got a bit more of a sort of legal um, a- aspect to them, I think will also be of interest to us. I mean, the what the deal that probably provided the most interest for us in 2021 was the Intralock deal. The, the fact that we saw a very, very aggressive restructuring plan driven by one set of note holders to the detriment of another. I think that's something that we haven't seen before over here. Uh, we have seen it in the US before, and I think that's something that you know could be of interest going into 2022, given the fact that those docs weren't particularly aggressive. And we all know that uh, docs in 2020, 2021 have been sort of very loose and very uh, debtor friendly. And that you know we feel that there could actually be much more use of documents in 2022 for businesses that do start to struggle. So I think that's definitely of interest to us to sort of follow up on that. Interesting. So. Even though it was the year that wasn't, it has really been an interesting one with a, a fair bit of innovation, you know, credit on credit violence that you mentioned. And also there's been a lot of evolution in the UK processes. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I suppose the, the key thing for us was in the beginning of 2021 was actually how the UK was going to fit into the overall landscape for Europe. After Brexit, we didn't have a, a formal recognition anymore of UK processes across Europe and UK had been used a lot as a, an implementation jurisdiction for you know non-UK companies. So the 
the, the UK restructuring plan has seen a lot of evolution in terms of uh, court precedents this year, starting off with the deep ocean deal, which was the first cross-cast cram, cram down. Then we saw Gate Group, which caused a lot of consternation amongst some of the restructuring community because it was deemed to be an insolvency process, unlike the English scheme, which potentially could have caused problems uh, for recognition in Europe. Um, then we saw one or two cases where creditors were challenging the plan, and therefore we saw a lot of exploration about the rationale behind the plan, what evidence had to be presented, what the judge needed to determine to actually you know, push a plan through, even though a certain groups of creditors were actually challenging the deal. Um, same thing happened on New Look with the, the CVA as well, which is also interesting because that's a sort of old process and the UK restructuring plan potentially could take um, the place of the CVA in a number of cases. And, and then we saw a couple of deals where the judges actually decided to reject restructurings with Amigo Loans and Hurricane Energy. And I think on both of those, the, the view was that the companies pushed very, very hard to suggest there was a burning platform and that there was actually an imminent insolvency event and the judges were not convinced that was the case so i think there's been quite a lot of you know evolution over the last few months it's quietened down quite a lot back end of the year as the overall level of sort of restructuring activity has, has dropped so we haven't seen that many cases go through the courts but i think it has been a really key year to sort of determine case law and to get a better idea of how the judges will uh, look at the new plans uh, one thing that we also wanted to talk about um, was the potential contagion risk from external factors, things like you know Chinese real estate, um, as you mentioned, German real estate. Is this going to be a major issue in 2022? I'm not sure. I think that on Adler, the view seems to be that where the company might be leaning a little bit aggressive in terms of its accounting, that the, some of the, the events that have happened since in terms of the portfolio sales, you know, it feels like Adler is okay. Um, it might mean that they not be able to finance themselves at such cheap rates as before, but I think most people view that company as being, um, you know, it's, it's not going to default in 2022. I think there's much more concern around other names such as ag aggregate and sort of core state in that sector. So I think that's something we're going to be looking at quite closely. It looks like at the moment the Chinese real estate situation hasn't sort of created contagion i suppose the only thing that it has done is it probably uh, for those distress funds with a global mandate has offered them you know um something to an asset class to really get involved in so you might find that a lot of the distress funds will you know park a lot of their cash in 2022 in some of those you know chinese names so there might be you know given the fact there's a lack of situations to really get involved in in, in europe then they might decide to go that way if they have that global mandate So uh, today I have with me our resident CLO expert, senior reporter Owen Sanderson. Thank you so much for joining us today, Owen. Thanks for having me on the podcast again, Kat. Fantastic. Well, we're here to talk today about CLOs. First off, it'd be great to know how was 2021 from, from a morale perspective? When you were chatting to people, what was the general sentiment? Overwhelmingly positive, but also exhausted. It was a record record year. Um, it was generally fantastic for every participant in the market. Managers did a lot of deals. Arrangers were rushed off their feet. Um, huge amount of new issue as well as reset, refi activity. Um, and yeah, apart from simple exhaustion, 
I think everybody everybody made money. Everybody felt good about 2021, and uh, will I imagine be carrying some of that high morale into 2022? Oh, so an exciting space to be in. Um, when it, when it comes to spreads, how did they evolve this year, and what do you think is going to happen to them in 2022? Spreads, I suppose, haven't been quite the slam dunk that issuance might suggest um we had a sort of broad tightening bias at the beginning of the year um driven by some major uh, new investors particularly at the senior end of the capital structure um some of the big us banks um started taking quite sizable positions um which which helped tighten the market um bit of a wobble around summer um, I think we also saw this in the leverage loan market you know sort of slight crumbling in July July August um, some widening at that senior end uh, before strong September by the end of the year sure things have got a bit lackluster but really nothing to worry about um, at the bottom of the capital structure spreads pretty much went sideways to to a certain extent we didn't end end a million miles from where we started um that's there's a very active buy base there um but they are quite price sensitive so nobody is willing to kind of chase chase paper tighter um in 2022 i would say um slightly slightly tighter maybe it will depend on supply. We're expecting very strong supply um, and a lot will again depend on whether those major investors um, stay in the senior part of the capital structure, whether there's whispers that some of the Japanese investors are kind of tentatively coming back. Um, obviously, the most famous of those is Noren Chukin, um, but uh, will they simply roll their positions will they come back in real size will they chase paper tighter we don't know that um so i would say tighter slightly tighter to flat you touched on the kind of reset refi versus new issue um just before now but um where where do you stand on that and and how did that situation evolve this year as i as i mentioned the 2020 deals uh were generally done with quite inefficient structures, um, not very levered, um, maybe very short dated, uh, just so managers could get deals away in that more difficult environment. And generally, those deals were callable very quickly because managers knew they didn't want this this inefficient capital structure in place for a long time. So, 2021 seen a huge amount of activity get, getting rid of those, basically um, fixing them up, getting um, more leverage in the in the system um the big sort of unknown is to what extent slightly older deals that are callable um i think i saw a stat somewhere that there is still a very large number of deals that are callable in 2022 um and if we get a meaningful tightening then absolutely managers will look to managers in equity will look to lock in better levels if my slightly cautiously optimistic spread outlook doesn't come to pass and there's just too much supply and people um pull away then i think those deals will will still just remain remain outstanding and won't be called um there there's less sort of over imperative to refi and reset than there was this year 
And I understand that rates have sort sort of been forgotten about in the Omicron news wave, but uh, what's the situation with rates and, and how will it affect sentiment in 2022? The CLOs are a floating rate product in theory, but in practice they are not uh, because they all, as leveraged loans do, have your eyeball flaws in the debt tranches, um, which means for uh, a number of years now they've effectively been fixed rate because because your ribor is is assumed to be zero no matter what it actually is um as rates rise um or expectations of rates rise um then the value of that your ribor floor is diminished meaning clos become perhaps less attractive versus other fixed income products we saw that a little bit i think in the beginning of november this year um but it seemed to have relatively little impact on the actual technicals in the market. You know, it was a theoretical truth that the Eurible floor was less valuable, but in practice, nobody cared. So I'm going to go ahead and predict that nobody will care in 2022 either, unless the ECB goes way faster than people are expecting. One thing I should slightly point to is that the base rate for um, US CLOs will be switching from LIBOR uh, at the end of this year to um, SOFA. Uh, we've seen a couple of SOFA deals already, um, but that's expected to cause some disruption, perhaps a slight pause in the pace of the US CLO market as people get used to those, uh, then new base rate. So we're here with Jack David, our ESG analyst. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Jack. Thanks for having me, Kat. Today we're just going to be talking a bit about um, ESG and how it's developed in 2021 and what you think is going to happen in 2022 in this closely watched sector. Yeah, I mean, um, clearly there's been a lot going on. We've seen um, over a tenfold increase in sustainability-linked debt issuance, uh, jumping to 20% of all debt issued. Uh, This shows enormous increase in interest, really, from both investors and issuers. Did this kind of come as a surprise to you? Well, I mean, the scale, the scale of the increase is pretty big, uh, but it's, it's not necessarily surprising considering the increase in pressure we've seen globally from all angles. Events such as COP26 unfolding later in the year, as well as a lot more stringent regulation on the horizon, TCFD for companies and SFDR for investors. Uh, we're likely to see a lot of the same in 2022. A PwC report actually estimated earlier in the year that ESG assets could make up around 30 to 40% of Europe's entire private market by 2025. So this is all good progress, right? This The enthusiasm is, of course, positive. Uh, investors' ambition is clear. And this can be seen with things like the Mark Carney-led Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. This saw $130 trillion of private capital sign up to net zero pledges, although it did see some some of the big names such as Fidelity and Capital Group uh, not sign up. However, there's still a long way to go in terms of ensuring these funds are credibly achieving the targets they signed up to. Somewhat like a virus, as investors become more clued up on greenwashing, it's evolving and becoming harder to identify and eradicate. So in Mark Carney's own words, for example, the Glasgow Financial Alliance will be marking its own homework and this will be based on the net zero strategies of companies themselves. Some may ask, out of this $130 trillion signed up, how much of this is going to be credible and realistic in terms of net zero strategies? Any examples of this? 
Um, yeah, one, there's one interesting example springs to mind, which is the US uh, high yield issuer Occidental. Uh, it's an oil and gas company that is remarketing itself as a carbon management company. It's the only oil and gas company in the high yield space that was rated by the Transition Pathway Initiative to be aligned to a 1.5 degree C warming pathway, uh, which of course means it's ahead of all of its peers. The issue is that when analyzing its strategy in more detail, there's some limitations. Um, firstly, the, the strategy is dependent on carbon capture technology. Although this has seen some promising developments in 2022, it really isn't viable yet at the scale needed for it to be effective. And this technology is also used along with enhanced oil recovery, which means that the CO2 capture will be used in drilling to extract even more oil than would have otherwise be possible. So there's a debate around whether this is feasible and whether the end result will really be positive. Um, the TPI's assessment methodology is also limited. Uh, and when we asked for, uh, for comment from TPI, they uh, told us that they assessed the ambition of the company but not the strategies used to reach targets set. So, and for Occidental, they also calculated scope three emissions based on their own methodology, which mean, meant that they used sectoral averages, which is somewhat detached from the reality of what scope three emissions might actually be. So what would you say about the company and about reporting standards as a whole? Um, this isn't to say that the they are, that they're not ambitious and comparatively they are strong against peers. Uh, but it's just important that companies report accurately and realistically, realistically on their strategies and roadmaps. Uh, it's equally, it's important that investors are able to separate greenwashing from fact when assessing the companies. If they don't, then the whole Net Zero project, as well as wider ESG, um, is in danger of being derailed as trust will be lost in its efficacy. And that's it for this week's episode of On Cloud Ninefin. We'll be back in two weeks' time with all the news that you need on the leveraged finance world. Thank you to Ben, to Chris, to Owen, to Jack, uh, and to you, listener, of course. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Amazon Music, and on Apple Music. Uh, see you next time.